Hello and welcome to episode 62 of the Corinne Nidja podcast. I'm your host, Corinne Nidja. Every week I share people's incredible stories of recovery after adopting a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet. And if you're a first-time listening today, I have guests, if you go back through the episodes, there are guests on this show who have overcome type 2 diabetes, heart disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, you know, several forms of cancer now, and so many others, polycystic ovarian syndrome, fertility issues, menopause. There are so many stories on here. Obviously, there's a lot, there's a lot of um, weight loss stories as well, which are really inspiring and encouraging for those of us who struggled with our weight, myself included, who have had issues with food addiction, obesity, yo-yo dieting, fad dieting, all of those things. There are lots of stories on on, on there now from people who have overcome and maintained their weight loss for an extended period of time, years and years, where typically only 2% of people ever maintain their weight loss after two years, which is, I found it shocking. <laughs> but I think when you look around and it's 70% of people are overweight or obese, that figure isn't so startling. But I mean, when I first learned that, I was thinking, wow, you know, people feel so down on themselves for not maintaining their weight, but only 2% do ever. So that just goes to show that this is such a com this is a complex problem. It isn't a it isn't an easy problem for most people when we've been indoctrinated into this way of eating, these West this Western diet, high in saturated fats, processed foods, refined sugars, refined flours, all of those things. Those foods are highly addictive. If you've read The Pleasure Trap by Dr. Doug Lyle and Dr. Goldhammer, it's a really great book. If you're struggling to understand, just explaining the biology and the science behind why we struggle so hard to ignore our cravings and and eat healthy most of the time. It's a really great book, The Pleasure Trap. Go check it out. Now, this week's guest story is really heavy and every week, every story from a guest, you know, I, I don't know if I talk about this enough and I should. Every person who comes on the show, ever since I've done my own episode, you know, it's it's such a big deal to come on a podcast and share the worst moments of your life. And that, and that's why, you know, I'm so so grateful to every single person who has come on this show and shared some of the worst moments of their lives, you know, the darkest, scariest, most terrifying places because they're coming on and doing that because I really want to help anyone who's listening, to give anyone who's listening the chance to to get some hope, to feel better, to to be less frightened and less afraid and feel less alone. They're sharing their stories in the hopes that just even one person uh, listening will will feel comforted and less isolated, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And for me, you know, when I shared my podcast, I got, you know, it was, I shared a lot. And I did that because I really believed that talking about, for instance, the the trigger topic that that got a lot of people like, whoa, apart from the constipation talk, in my, in my episode was talking about how it, 
chronic disease impacts on your relationships and how, for me, and for a lot of people, and I knew it was a lot of people, it does impact upon your relationships and on your ability to feel like you are worthy of love. And, and, and often we behave poorly, I guess, when we don't feel lovable, when we don't feel worthwhile, when we don't feel attractive, when we don't feel good about ourselves in any way, and when we're frightened about the future and what our capacity is going to be in the future. And for me, that led to me pushing away my now husband, but then boyfriend, and not being the best partner for him. So it was really a nerve wracking doing that. But since then, people have written to me and said, this is exactly what I do in relationships. It's not, not, it might be that you drink too much in them or you're not present in them or that you, we, we push our partners away in a multitude of ways. You know, it's not just that you could be in infidelity. It could be cheating, drinking, domestic, verbal abuse, domestic violence. You know, there are so many ways we can sabotage our relationships and hurt the people that we love. Withdrawing our affection. You know, there are so many ways. And it, we do do it. When you don't feel loved and lovable and you feel broken and unworthy and all of these different things, it's not uncommon, even though we feel like we're monsters when we do it. And I definitely felt like a monster at the time when I did it and like I was the worst person in the whole world. It is super hard. But I shared that story because I knew that someone out there would breathe a sigh of relief knowing that they're not alone that they're not the worst person in the world. They're just a scared, frightened person. And scared, frightened, broken people don't always act in the best way that they, if they were their 100% greatest self, of course they wouldn't do the things that they're doing. But in this dark place that they're in right now, they don't feel like they're worthy of love and they don't feel like they're anyone should love them or could love them or could love them through what's coming, what they think the inevitable inevitable is for them with the chronic disease that they have. For me, that was, you know, a likelihood of a wheelchair, of incontinence, of mobility, you know, significant mobility issues. And I'd already watched my brother go through the exact, that ex pretty much that exact same thing before he died. I didn't want anyone else. I didn't think anyone in their right mind would want to endure what I endured, you know, witnessing my brother suffering, you know, just so much physical suffering and the sleepless nights and the, and the caring fatigue, the fatigue that comes with caring for someone that you love so much while they're slowly deteriorating and then eventually when they die. It's so much for people and so... I get it. I really get it. And so I just wanted to mention that because today's guest, she she didn't uh, do those things, but it's a heavy topic, and there, there are there are so there are so many pieces to chronic disease. And the guests the guests who come on the show they open themselves up for you. You know, we do it for you to get these messages, to share it with your family, to hear these stories, and go whoa, you know, if this person can have been in that darker place and that unwell and that sick and that frightened and that alone and come through that, that's incredible. And if they can, why not me? What can I do today just to start moving forward? What's the first baby step? Is it just getting out of this chair and going out to the front yard 
and smelling a flower. Is that the best I can do today? And then tomorrow, can I move a bit forward to the letterbox? And the next day, can I move a bit forward to the corner? Or can I just start doing some stretches? Or can I get a personal trainer if you're a bit further ahead than that? Or can I move anyway? without pain or just try and push myself a little bit harder or go see a doctor again and get a second or third opinion or can I add some more vegetables to my plate and crowd out some of the meat, dairy, eggs and processed foods. The guests on our show share their stories to help say we've been often where similar place to where you are and we've moved through it. And it hasn't been like the easiest journey at all, but it's possible. It's so possible and it's more than possible. It's so worthwhile. So I made this, re-recorded this because it was too long last time when I was passionately going on this <laughs> on this journey talking about this. But it's just really important to me that, you know, I share my gratitude to the guests who come on and share these stories because it's not easy. Like my episode... Anytime anyone tells me they've listened to it, I get anxiety. I feel bad. They hear all about that old Corinne that I don't identify with anymore, that old Corinne who was sick, suffering. It's a hard place to go back into and to be reminded of and to all that pain to be drudged back up, the pain that I caused other people, the pain that I was dealing with myself. It's a lot. And for the guests on my show, it's a lot. And this week's guest is Kate McGoy-Smith. And she is a mother of three, she she has been through more than most people could ever, ever imagine. I am so, so grateful, Kate, if you're listening, I'm so, so grateful that you came on this show and shared your story because it has, it really touched me and, you know, you took us to your darkest places and if you're, you're going to listen and I look forward to hearing her story because Kate has overcome a lot and she's still overcoming. She was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. She um, lost her ability to see and see her children. She was confined to a room upstairs in her house because she she couldn't risk falling going down the stairs. She um, spent five years unable to see and unable to you know, care for herself. So, so much to her story and so much suffering that five years, I can't even begin to imagine not being able to see my children's faces for five years. I don't want to say too much because I really want Kate to, Kate to share her story, but stories like Kate's and, and, and enthusiasm that Kate has when she's telling her story, which is incredible. And she's just so grateful now for all that she has now and she's just so passionate about giving back and sharing this message of a low-fat whole food plant-based diet for healing and health and I'm so grateful to Kate and I'm so excited for you to hear what she has to say and and hear her story because I know that you're going to be as touched as I was to, to hear it and please leave a comment if you've clicked on this from social media or clicked on this on the website show notes please leave a comment even just to thank Kate for taking the time out of her life to to share this story with you because every single guest deserves to be thanked because you know they are pouring their hearts out each week every twice a week now to help inspire people and help motivate people and encourage people to adopt this way of eating and and that deserves a huge huge 
pat on the back. So if you take the time to do that, that would be so nice. Obviously, please share these stories with your family and friends on social media because stories like Kate's, even though they're they're so hard to listen to, they could really help so many people, especially considering that one in three people in the United States alone is pre-diabetic and there's, you know, over 600 I think it's like 600,000 people that in, in the States who have type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is the most, like 90% of all diabetes is type 2 diabetes. It is completely preventable and reversible with a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet for pretty much everyone who's who's tried it. It's really important people know that. You know, my grandmother lost both her legs to diabetes and... And, you know, Mark Ramirez from Chickpea and Bean, you know, his whole family were significantly impacted by this disease. And and now in this episode, you'll hear Kate's story. And there is no need for people to suffer like this. So when you share this podcast episode, you're helping other people who you may not even know or you may not, you know, it might be friends of friends of yours to hear this information or possibly his information and and transform their health. You know, who wants to lose their legs and their sight and their vision when it's completely preventable? So please, yes, t- taking the time. I know that, you know, it's not, I know that it's difficult and, and, and confronting to sometimes share things on social media when you're worried how they're going to get received and and whatever. I get it. I, I really do get it. <laughs> but these stories, it's so important that people hear stories like Kate's and stories like Mark's around type 2 diabetes and, and all chronic diseases because there's so many on here. People need to know that as of today, when you're listening to this, there's 62 episodes, but there's actually 66 recorded episodes of stories like Kate's out there and there's more and more and more on Forks Over Knives and, and, and everywhere as far as success stories goes. You can find them effortlessly and there will be more and more as time goes on. So every single guest on our show is spreading the word, doing the work to get these stories and this way of life out there to people that they know and that they love because none of us want people that we love to to suffer like Kate has or like I have or like Rebecca Stonor had or like Joyce Hale has or any of the guests on our show for a variety of reasons. There is so many people out there suffering needlessly and I would be so grateful if we can all work as a team to like an army of low-fat, whole-food, plant-based people to get these stories out as far as we can, as wide as we can, because people need to hear that. People need to know about it. People need to know that this is the only diet proven to reverse, prevent and reverse heart disease out there in existence. So that's a huge thing. It's our number one killer across the globe. You know, it's it's so important people know about this way of eating and that our governments and that our communities, you know, know about it so that they can stop having fundraisers of sausage sizzles and class one carcinogens and processed meats and all of those things that are keeping us sick, overweight and feeling horrible. The more of us that share these messages and these stories, the better. That's my personal mission. I feel completely a thousand percent committed to that mission. So thank you all for your support and supporting this podcast as always. And thank you so much, Kate, for coming on this show. And what else did I have to say? Oh, if you're in my local area, I am 
hosting a little cooking class, chat class, catch up, just to meet some people from the area and just to share some food, talk about whole food, plant-based eating. That's going to be on the 10th of December if you're listening at real time, so in about 12 days, in Tacoma here in the Dandenong Ranges at 9.15 a.m. at the Tacoma Uniting Church. So you can go to my Facebook page, the Corinne Ninja Facebook page, and find the event there and book in and come along and we'll eat some yummy food and talk about whole food plant-based eating and, and just meet face-to-face. I'm super excited just to meet people and chat and have a hug <laughs> and whatever. It'll be great. So I'm looking forward to that. There are so many great guests coming up on the show too, so I'm very excited to share them with you as of starting on Sunday. And... Also excited because Dr. Michael Clapper is coming on the show. (gasps) He's one of my faves. So I hope you're excited about that too. And yes, I better get going because the episode was already really long and now it's going to be even longer. But I just wanted to say all that. And don't forget to subscribe because I put out new episodes every Sunday slash Monday and now also on Thursday slash Friday to get you through if case on Thursday you start to think, oh my gosh, I just want to eat a donut. Don't eat the donut. Listen to the episode instead. (laughs) That's the goal of the second episode for the week is to keep you motivated so you can get through the weekend and ready for the episode that comes out on Monday. I said Sunday slash Monday. I meant Monday slash Tuesday and Thursday slash Friday. So, Yes, don't forget to subscribe, and if you have the time, head over to Apple Podcasts, which was iTunes, or a Stitcher app, and leave a five-star rating, which would be so helpful to me and the podcast, and also a kind review, which I mention every week, but it really, 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 <laughs> it really helps the podcast to reach more people, which is the driving force behind everything so thank you to everyone who already has you know who you are i'm so grateful i love you all and let's just get into kate's story because i am super excited to share it with you hello kate and welcome to the show hello corinne i'm glad to be here with you oh thank you so much i've told everyone a little bit about you in their intro but if you would like to just launch straight into your story we would all love to hear it Sure. Um, Well, I was a busy mother of three. I had um, a child in grade school, one in junior high and one in high school. And my job was to, I'm a former registered nurse. And then I went back to school after several years of working both in the operating room and at the bedside. And I decided to do my master's in clinical social work. And I became trained also as a family mediator. And so my last position was to start free on-site counseling services um, at school sites for for an entire school board from scratch, from blank paper. And by the time I became sick, six and a half years later, I was supervising 13 counselors in 12 school sites. So very, very busy. And in addition to that, I had a private practice And as well as I often did, we have a global television, which is a national program in Canada. And I was considered a relationship expert and would come on and talk about, you know, at different times of the the month about different issues, whether it was Valentine's Day or kids going back to school, those kind of things. So I work in a very um, brief solution focused way. I've been a family therapist for well over 25 years and, um, 
I see myself as having the true privilege of working with people who have courage because no matter what problem they're facing, they have courage to think about trying to do something different. And, um, and that does take courage because we can always put things like that on the back burner and live a very discontented life. And instead they want something more in their life. And I think that's a, a really um, inspiring message and, and really exciting to be around people like that. Um, no matter what their struggle is, they're, they're trying to move forward and figure it out. And so I'm, I feel lucky that I'm the non-expert in the room and I'm there to be kind of a little bit of a tour guide in the passenger seat that the car they're driving in and sort of point out, hey, there's a road here, there's an opportunity to rest here. And for them, though, they make the decisions of where they're going to go, how how long it's going to take them to get there and what they want to do when they get there. Oh, that's awesome. So when you got sick, tell us a bit more about that. What happened? Yeah, it, it kind of crept up on me. My husband always referred to me as the Energizer Bunny. You can kind of hear from the different, you know, having a private practice in addition to working full time and starting programs and things like that. I had also been a university lecturer at five different universities for over 10 years. So I was used to a really, I have to say, being a mother allowed me because I tried to work around my kids and a lot of times their schedule because I considered parenting my a real vocation um, is that it really inspired me to be very creative in the path I took and how I ended up working. So I felt very fortunate with that. And um, so the Energizer Bunny started to lose steam. I noticed that like I usually jumped out of bed. I was excited like every day. I was sort of like working in an emotional emergency room. You don't know what you're going to be facing in the morning. And it's really keeps you on your toes and you're busy all day with crisis. We had children, for example, who as young as grade one, um, that's sort of at age five, threatening suicide, for example. Um, maybe they had lost a um, parent figure in their life and they just said, hey, I want to go to I want to be with them in heaven. And you want to make sure that they're safe and that they understand the sort of more permanence of death. But that doesn't mean that they can't keep that person alive in, inside them, that that's OK. And there's other ways to be able to be with that person, even if they're not physically with that person, things like that. So you, it was constantly different crises that came up. Also, obviously, supporting teachers because they have a very demanding role as a pseudo-pseudo parent during the daytime. And uh, so I, I did a lot of that kind of work. And I, and I just, every day, I really looked forward to it. I never felt like it was um, a chore, to be honest with you. So very blessed that way. And, um, and then, you know, I'd come home and be a homework partner and I didn't know math that well in comparison to my kids. So I had to kind of learn it and then teach them and that kind of thing. So, yeah. So at the end of the year, by that time, we always had a celebration for all the homework we, that we had all gotten through that year. <laughs> <laughs> I need to start doing that too. <laughs> they, they, we all said, hey, we made it through another year of hard work. And um, so what I found is that I was starting to, when I would get dressed, I had, um, we had really tough gym teachers when I was in high school. And if you didn't change within two minutes, like you, you were having to run laps. So you really learned to change very quickly and get going with your day and everything. So, but I noticed I was much slower. It was like I was having trouble kind of, you know, just 
getting dressed and I was slower and I didn't seem to have the energy. And by the time I would come home at night, I was like in bed before my kids and I was in my pajamas almost right away, just kind of having a, trying to have a little nap so that I could be available in the evening and things like that. And it just sort of started to happen over a, when I look back, it was about a year that I, I kind of kept saying I did the, I think I did the mothering thing. Mothers are pretty other focused and, uh, you know, just drop the M and you got other there. And, uh, and so I was thinking, oh, it's, I'm just working too hard. I'll need to cut back a bit and whatever. And, um, I sort of tried to talk myself out of it because my kids were wonderful distractors of their needs first. And, um, you know, I really put myself last and, uh, and then I noticed that it was really getting hard. I noticed that my legs were getting very swollen. My abdomen was getting swollen. And, um, I thought it was perhaps this sort of with the summer heat and the humidity, but it was happening kind of more in the spring. And I thought, gee, this is really strange. And it got to the point where I really had to go to, we have what's called acute care here. It's many emergency rooms in the community. And uh, I went and at that time, then I was diagnosed actually uh, with type 2 diabetes. And I was really mad at myself because although I had to also forgive myself because diabetes, when it's type 2, it does can sneak up on you because, you know, you um, may be more thirsty, but well, if it's that warmer weather, you think you're just drinking more because of the heat and, you know, you're more fatigued and, you, and I th- was thinking it was workload related and not anything else. And during the time that they discovered that diagnosis, they noticed that there were some abnormalities with my heart. So I had to go for further investigation. I went through a series of investigations and it found out that I had severe right-sided heart failure. And that led to further investigations because that was very unusual. Um, and in discovering that, I ended up having to have a number of um, tests and procedures. And this diagnosis, I was di- ended up being diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. So people often hear the word hypertension and they know it from all the commercials on television. It's high blood pressure. But this is very specific high blood pressure. It's only in, it's localized in one part of your body and it's in the pulmonary arteries of the lungs and it's not in other parts of your body. So in fact, what happens is you have lightheadedness and dizziness and fainting and, uh, and your blood pressure is more like nine overall systemically, your blood pressure is um, like 90 over 50. So it's very low because what happens is with severe right-sided heart failure, the blood in the right side or the valves of the right side of your heart are trying to take the blood that's been um, all the deoxygenated blood is right there. And it's trying to get up over the crust of the valve into the left chamber to be able to go through the lungs and get refreshed with oxygenated blood and circulate through your body. And so what happens is that's very hard to do with severe right-sided heart failure. You just can't, you know, it's really hard to get over that. So what happens is you become short of breath and again, the lightheadedness and fainting. And so I was diagnosed literally December 20th in 2007. Uh, They have to do something called a right heart catheterization. You're awake during the procedure. You're going to take into a special operating room They have intensive care on call. 
um, because you can bleed out from it. And so what happens is, and I'm telling kind of more graphic details because people... Yeah, please do. I think it's important. Yeah, because I think, unfortunately, uh, you know, a lot of commercials gloss over all the side effects. They give you a whole list, but it's like as if that's minor. Well, sometimes one side effect is major for anybody. So I've come to face that it's sometimes helpful to share some of the ugliness of illness so that people realize, you know what, there are some more choices out there uh, than sort of rusting out as you age, you know. Um, And so what they do is they insert a catheter with a wire into your carotid artery. It goes down into the two chambers of your heart, into your lungs, and you're awake during this. And you have to sit, stay, lie very perfectly still for several hours. And they do x-rays and they do other tests and they try to see if they can give you a gas called nitric oxide to see if you'll respond to that. I didn't, unfortunately. And um, so December 20th, that evening, I was in a recovery room and uh, I was told this is the gold standard so that they know for sure because the drugs are so, so potent and toxic that it would be true malpractice if they did not have this test in place to know um, that you have this before they give you these drugs. And many of them are experimental because all they can do is, unfortunately, it's called idiopathic. And I say that's because even idiots don't know what caused this or can't cure it. (laughs) That's my little bit of humor. Uh, It's no cause and no cure for this. It affects two to four in a million. So it's very rare. So I can tell people who are listening, guess what? You probably don't have it. Uh, I'm taking the fall, guys. <laughs> and um, and so uh, what happens is that uh, for me, within months, I uh, was on oxygen. So I had a plastic mustache, a nasal cannula, carrying a very heavy tank. Um, and that was like scuba diving on land. And then in addition to that, I became blind. So I lost my sight um, just within months of that. Sorry, what so year I was, was this? So, pardon me? What year was all of this? Sorry, I missed. I was writing notes yeah, and then I missed it. All of that at the same time. What year so was it? lost my job. Like, I mean, I, ha- I could not work anymore. So I lost my job. Um, I, you know, was on oxygen, told I only had, I was told I had two to five years to live, two years without any kind of treatment and five years with treatment. And the treatment is these very heavy duty chemotherapy level toxic drugs. And they're all there to do is try to slow the progression of the disease with no promise of anything else than that. If they can possibly do it, most people don't live beyond about two years, two to three years. And, um, and then I was on top of that, you know, um, I was blind. So I was so blind that if you went to your vanity mirror and you're going to brush your teeth, all I would see, even that up close would be just a big black hole. I couldn't even see where my teeth were to brush them. Wow. So, 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 so why does that happen? Why do you go blind? Well, Part of the reason that they felt was I I was told by my retinologist who was really great. And I was so glad that my husband was there. And I think that's important for anybody as a tip. And I knew that from my nursing days is that you think that you're hearing everything, but you're not. Many times, so much information that you take in a part of it and your head is spinning into thinking about that. And you don't realize they're still talking. 
you can see lips read, but you can't hear anything. Absolutely. One of the reasons why I, one of the reasons why I became a social worker, sorry to interrupt you, yes, was because my parents, when my brother was sick, I would see them with the doctors and I would think that their son's dying. They can't hear what you're saying. Yeah. And I really want to be a social worker so I could bridge that gap in hospitals because be that liaison between the family and the professionals. Yeah. You can't take it in when your loved ones are dying. Yes. And you're given this sort of like you're given this like really heavy you think of it like a suitcase and there's no one there to help you unpack it and they just say good luck to you. There's no wheels on it. There's yeah. nothing. And <laughs> no. it's good luck. Can you move it along now? Like, you know, next, you know, and you're like, I can barely move this thing and I've got to carry it off to somewhere. Um, I don't even know if I have the combination to open it. There's nobody to help me. So that's such a great analogy, Kay. It's such a great analogy. You know, and so that you can repack it, open it and see what's in it and see what you can handle and see what maybe you don't need to have in there. And then, you know, kind of make it your own, you know. And maybe get some help, like get some wheels on it or a luggage cart or something. <laughs> Do all the heavy lifting yourself. Because it's a very lonely prospect. And um, so, you know, there I was, like, um, I didn't know, for example, uh, the re- I'll go back to your question, actually, how come I became blind? My retinologist, fortunately, as I mentioned, my husband was there because it's sort of like, okay, I didn't imagine what he said. Um, and what he said was, you've got a couple challenges. You have a lack of oxygen to your eyes. Your diabetes has affected. You have diabetic retinopathy. And then on top of that, the drugs you're taking are really potent. So I said to him, is there anything I can do? And he just turned to me in a very gentle way, but said very firmly, he said, Kate, it's between your eyes or your lungs. What do you want to choose? And you know what, that was not a really hard dilemma at all. Because what I appreciated about him is there was no bull, there was no sidestepping, it was direct. And it was as truthful as he knew it. And I said, and to me, it was a very easy decision. My kids need hugs, they don't need me to see them. You know, so I needed to keep my lungs as healthy as possible. And it was honestly one of the easiest decisions I had in my whole, I mean, was it a decision I enjoyed all the time? No. Any decision we have, I think people forget, even if we do a simple pros and cons and come up with a number, ah, seven pros and five, like, you know, three cons, you still have to live with those three cons. And you have to figure out how do I manage those three things but, you know, it outweighs it. And so I, you know, it's not that I was thrilled to be blind, because what happens is, it really throws off your, your gait, it throws off your balance a lot. Um, everything feels kind of fuzzy. And, you know, it's not um, necessarily that, you know, and slowly over time, like I had to learn to make the cane, uh, my friend, and be able to trust you want it normally if you can't see something what do we do naturally we look down and that's the worst thing to do when you're blind um, because also our eyes follow our body and we can fall more easily and so I had to learn to look up all the time but use my cane to actually feel the ground and veer it out so one of the things I had to do is just knowing yourself a bit I was living in a relatively small community outside Calgary's a very big city 
Um, and we lived in a little more rural town just um, south of Calgary called Okotoks. And it's, it's um, a native word for big rock. And there is a really huge big rock there. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we were going to go on a little holiday. And I said, I don't, they showed me how to use the blind cane. I went to Canadian National Institute of the Blind and became a client. And, uh, and I was actually the one, not my eye doctor or anybody who said I need I did my own social work referral. I said to the doctor, I think I really need this. I need some help. And he said, oh, yeah, I was going to refer you, but in a while, like I thought I'd give you a chance. But many times medical people don't think to ask you, whereas in social work, you know, at least the way I've practiced, we ask the client, what do you want? What, you know, what do you think you can handle? These are these options, but I don't know what direction, what goal do you want? And um, so I said to him, no, I want to go right away. And it was arranged and I went and uh, they showed me how to do it. And I said to my husband, I don't want to do it in my community because I want to have mastery over before I get asked a lot of questions. Because one of the things I found out too when I became sick is that people weren't asking necessarily out of regard for me. They were asking just like a news cycle of 411. 411 here is for information. And it was just more out of information. Uh, we could say it impolitely, no, nosiness, or we could say it, you know, from a professional stance, it's curiosity. Um, however, when it's coming to personal questions, that doesn't always feel very um, caring. Uh, and it seems like a curiosity has crossed the border to nosiness yes. and intrusiveness. Yeah. Not like just, it's really good to see you. I'm glad to be with you. Can I be of any help to you? Very few people do that. And I think that was the other thing is that when I was told I got the disease, to be honest, I had been a nurse for a number of years, working with both in the operating room when people are very vulnerable and at the bedside. And uh, the thought of being a patient for the rest of my life was really probably one of the most devastating things of all, because I've seen the medical system and how you become part of the system and it's, there's not much room for a person's voice in there sometimes. They're getting a little bit better now. They're starting to talk about patient engagement and the importance of the patient's voice. But it's still, it's a long way to, it's not fully in, uh, embraced by way of action. It's, it's at least becoming more of an intellectual um, thought and a, a way of policy and practice a little bit. But the practice is behind like anything else. Um, and so that was a very depressing thing to find that out. But I had to go, what do I do? And then I had the challenge of that's one thing kids wake you up. It's like, because, hey, it's not all about me. And I thought I, I tried to find information. Um, and uh, I really couldn't find anything. So I decided to approach it like sex education. And that might be helpful some for some viewers is I thought I'm going to go by the readiness of each of my children because each child is very different and they're different ages and maturity. And I asked them not to go on the internet because there's a lot of misinformation and pretty dramatic stuff there. And uh, I said, if you have any questions, I want you to ask, ask me and I will tell you as honestly as possible. And, um, and I, but I did tell them all this. I said, look, you're going to see me get, feel like I'm getting a little bit worse and stuff, but I want you to know there's something I can take away from you. And that is worry. 
because I know that working with kids, anxiety is probably the number one issue in schools. And for most people, anxiety just really runs rampant nowadays. And I said, I can take away your worry because I'm going to make you a promise right now. I'm going to do everything possible. I want you to know I will do everything possible to help myself get as well as possible. And I will keep my promise to you for that. So never think even if I, you know, I faint one day or whatever, like know that I will get back up and I will keep working on this. So you never have to wonder because I want to be here with you. And, and, and none of them knew, like my daughter wasn't until she was in grade 11 that she knew I had was a terminally ill. And that was by accident because I got a call from, I ended up eventually being on a lung transplant monitoring list. And um, they called and identified the clinic and they don't normally do that. And they left a message and she goes like, what's that about? Like, I don't understand. And yeah. And so she was the last one. And whereas our son, he was taking um, a health course and he's a few years older and he started to put the piece together and we had a quiet talk between us and, and, and my dad, his dad. And, you know, we said, anytime you can come to us and ask us questions and stuff like that. So we kind of each one of them, we handled that way. And um, I had um, CNIB, I had applied for a scholarship. And my goal was to get a computer generated program, which was very expensive at the time, we just could not afford it, with losing income and of, of work income and everything. And um, so I wanted to write goodbye stories to my children. I wanted to write the messages about what I wanted for them in the future, what I had learned in life and stuff. And that was going to be my project before I died. And I was fortunate they gave me the grant based on that desire. And I was very grateful. And what happened is one night, uh, we ended up getting a really large screen TV because I ended up having to give away all my professional library that I accumulated. I gave it to um, the staff members of a domestic violence shelter so that because they often are very poorly funded for any professional development. And um, I ended up actually teach them how to do solution focus. That's my area. Um, I practice solution focus since 93. And, um, and so I taught them that they didn't actually know I was blind, would you believe it or not? I um, went in there, I got in there ahead of time. And I stood without any oxygen on, because it was right beside me, but under the table. And because I knew if I stood very still, I could manage my breathing. And I didn't show, have my cane. And I taught because I had been a very experienced teacher. I had to remind myself. I kind of used solution focused on myself, looking at the exceptions like, hey, I've done this before. It doesn't really matter if I see them. I can hear them and I can get a sense of a room, you know. And uh, only at the end did I tell them that I was blind. They had no idea because I was obviously a sighted person before. So I didn't have the nuance of someone who was blind who um, from birth who might not have the inclination to bend, ch- turn their head or appear to look like they're listening in the way we do when we're sighted. And I have to say, I was very fortunate. I had worked, I, I, I crawled back some of my experience when I worked in the operating room, I worked in Houston, Texas at one point, and it was in an eye surgery. One of the things they taught us is that 
um, everybody is blind. And we were like, what? And they said, just think about it. Now, we have FaceTime now, but at the time we didn't. Um, And when you're on the phone, you don't see the person, and yet you communicate very adequately and very clearly with people. And you're both blind, if you think about it. And so I remembered back, I felt like when I looked back over my life, it was as if I had been aligned with many, many lessons. And um, I prefer to think that God helped set that up for me. You know, that I was given, like I looked back and I thought, wow, I have had a lot of great lessons to be able to handle this next challenge. And this challenge doesn't have to swallow me up. Um, I've got to, because my work with people had always been centered around the idea that everyone suffers, but how do you make suffering that seems wasteful, seems useless, you know, just pointless suffering into something purposeful? And so I had to apply those principles in my own life to make my suffering purposeful. And, um, and one night, I, I mentioned about the TV because we ended up getting a large screen TV. So if I stood really close to it, I could sort of see some images. And one night I turned on the television. I couldn't read the channels at all. I had no idea. And um, I turned on the channel and there was a gentleman named George Stropanopoulos who is like, um, I know American references, I don't know Australian ones, I'm sorry, but kind of a a lead um, talk show host kind of thing. Very popular nationally, a young gentleman. And he said, just one night he came on, and I just can't believe I just happened to turn it on. And he said, he started out his show, um, and he said, I saw the documentary Forks Over Knives. It changed my life. It might change yours. I'm not going to say anything else. And that's. And then he went on to his normal. And I was so intrigued. There, I am a very curious person. <laughs> that was very good way of capturing, but it captured my attention too. Oh, what is it? I'm going to go look. <laughs> I wanted to know what is this Forks Over Knives. And so at this time, you're on serious medication for your your very serious my medication was ranging from uh $36,000 a year to $100,000 a year and it was not covered by any kind of benefit plan it was just fortunate the government had started a mercy fund and so we it was covered that way otherwise people would have just given up because you just couldn't put your family through that um because you were gonna, you were dying anyway. So you go to like, it's just slowing, you know. Uh, because what this disease does, just for people to understand a little bit more, is this disease. Um, we have something lining all our blood vessels and arteries, and it's called the endothelium lining. It's the innermost lining, and these are the cells, and they actually produce nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is that gas and it was only sort of discovered it was nobel peace prizing discovery in the 1980s and it was really because when we walked up and down the stairs what made our legs uh, blood vessels constrict and dilate that's what that pumps the blood to help us go up and down the stairs and it was believe it or not they discovered the gas nitric oxide And so the idea was, okay, nitric oxide could help dilate then more of these blood vessels because as it was getting narrower and narrower with the endothelium getting thicker and thicker, 
think about it like almost like plaque. It's very similar to plaque idea. It's just thicker and thicker. The blood just can't get through. And the blood is carrying two important things, oxygen and nutrition. So, you know, if you don't give your body nutrition, it's it's not going to heal. It's not going to grow. It's not going to be well. And if you don't give it oxygen, it, it's actually, you know, you're going to find that it's going to be dying off. So we need both. It's kind of like it's our internal water and sunshine, you know, that of a plant. So um, what happens is that um, so that's a thickening of the that's lining of the cells. And um, so the medication is very, very toxic. And some of it was experimental. Like I was on one which was called oral triprosinol. And um, it would cause such jaw pain that it was like, um, it would clench up my jaw, but it would also be like chewing on glass. And you had to have meals 12 hours apart. And it's like very complicated. And I woke every single morning incontinent of stool for like five years. I was on like just every single morning. Um, and that's the ugliness that I at one time would not share. And then I thought, you know what? People need to know. People have to realize that it can get that bad. Uh, I mean, it didn't wreck my whole day, but it's it's not anything anybody would like to wake up Especially to. Especially when all. you're married as well. Like all the time, but no one wants, who wants to sleep beside someone? Just to be frank, that's waking yeah. up like that no i mean you you don't feel your sexiest no. <laughs> not even about being sexy but you know your whole relationship this damages everything you've lost your job you've lost you know you- it was just one loss after another i actually um they asked me i had done a lot of grant proposals because i was head of the program i was the clinical supervisor and manager of the family school liaison counseling program so we looked for a lot of money to help support that work. And um, uh, CNIB needed someone to come in and talk to one of their funders. And as, as I'm journeying, I thought I'll do a storyboard. And I started to write the story and I realized I wrote it in forms of teardrops. And I thought I list, I just listed the, the losses and it was just like one after, I mean, I couldn't drive. I couldn't walk. I couldn't walk a block. I, I, you know, I, nobody wanted to come and visit me. You couldn't see. I couldn't see. I, you know, it's just on and on and on. Um, and it was just like I couldn't read my books that I loved reading. I couldn't really watch television because I couldn't follow anything. If I read a book, I was like reading it at like less than a grade one. I would start off like the dog ran. And by the time I could finish the sentence and as I broke out, I couldn't even remember what the beginning of the sentence was. It would take me 15 or 20 minutes to get through one sentence. It was just exhausting. And then you're chronically fatigued that you're just waked out. Like I couldn't get from one room to another without having a resting chair to just sort of, okay, catch my breath and then go to the next room. And um, so, you know, and also fainting and uh, like twice we lived in a two story house at the time because that's uh, an economical thing for any family. Like most bungalows were really expensive and we had young kids, like two story was perfect for us. Well, I ended up fainting twice down the staircase and getting my foot caught in the railing. Thank God, because that's what kept me from falling all the way down the stairs. 
So I ended up having to crawl up and down the stairs. That's how I could get around. And eventually I just stayed upstairs. I didn't even go downstairs. And then they, the nurses actually said, you know, Kate, there's a fire hazard here. I said, what do you mean? Like, you know, we're very careful. She said, you can't even get down the stairs. And I went, oh, and that was a secret amongst a lot of wit, like people who have pulmonary arterial hypertension is they would be, have to be carried. Like one friend of mine was carried up fireman um, hold all the way up the stairs at night because she'd get down, but she couldn't get back. She didn't have the energy to get back up the stairs. And so I just ended up being in my bedroom. I used to say I could be like, you know, on those um, house arrests. I could have had the bracelets on my ankles, my hands. Needed to do a crime beforehand. (laughs) The helicopters overhead. Oh, Oh my God, there's like four or five convicts here. I could have a neck one. I could have, you know, I I had to find humor. I have to be honest to to get through a lot of it. Like when I'd open the door, if it was uh, bright, bright outside, all I'd see is a glow and I'd go think, God, it's too soon. Don't walk toward the light. (laughs) Don't take me yet. I mean, you just have to find the humor. And when I was blind, I, you know, if I got up really close to someone, it was like, and I was teaching kids in school about personal space and not getting too close. I mean, everybody looked like they were about, you know, 15 years old. And I'm like, holy cow, they're so young. It's only funny when I did get my sight back, I was shocked at how old people were. (laughs) it's like wow like I didn't know um but I ended up what I did is I typed on my computer I typed to the producers of Forks Over Knives and it was not coming to Calgary for a long time and it finally did like about a year and a half later or something uh they notified me and it was at an alternative theater which means it's not the regular theater So the alternative theater was two flights of stairs that you had to climb. And that was like saying to someone, by the way, just climb Mount Everest and then you can watch the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And so we did it three times. That's how determined after we saw it the first time, I was very close to the screen, but my husband who is a PhD in theoretical chemistry of all things, and he does risk analysis for the environment. He can walk and chew gum at the same time, which is fortunate. But he got right on board with it, um, and he was just super supportive, and he was like, yeah, we've got to try this. Like He was so impressed with the, the scientific evidence behind it, as was I, that he and he looked into all the papers and everything, um, and he's actually writing a paper right now with Dr. Esselstyn. Oh, wow. So we're finished, just putting the finishing touches on because our, our own – Respirologist is kind of like, hey, I'm going to back away from this. And that took us on a detour. But and the only reason he did is because they're very dependent on drug companies to um, support their research, I think, you know, Um, and I respect he has certainly a right to say no. Uh, but I'm glad that he considered it. And uh, and he's, you know, I have had five specialists in my life. And it was not unusual, for example, for me to have up to three medical appointments in a week and be waiting two or three or four hours uh, and being in appointments that long, like the appointments would be that long. So what is your husband's paper on with Dr. Esselstyn? I missed that. Yeah, Sorry. it's it's going to be on a, It's on a single case study. It's my my results over the last seven, eight years. So we could only do it that way because, of course, they haven't studied this as much. Although we did international, he did an international review, 
And out of uh, London, England, they're looking at using beet juice as a way of promoting more nitric oxide. But what they're missing, I would say, and this is just my own opinion, but they're, and I think he would share it, what they're missing is the whole dietary aspect. Because it's sort of like, it's like trying to plug a sink without having a plug, you know, and you're used to using your finger, and it works for a little while, but then you get fatigued or fed up with holding the, the, the as the stop, being the stopper when you need to get a stopper um, to hold the water. And so if you, you, you increase your nitric oxide, that's very helpful. But at the same time, if you're having lots of oils and you're eating meat, which is high in fats and all of that kind of stuff, you're kind of undoing, you know, you're draining the water out of the sink all the time. When you're saying that, like my own brain's thinking about, about it as well. And I think I I often talk about diet as far as, you know, we, we wouldn't put lollies and candy and pies and chips in our car engine uh, as a fuel but we do it to our bodies I mean if you were putting good quality petrol and oil into your car like beet juice for example in this beet juice example but also putting donuts and chips still in there and thinking I'm doing all the but I'm putting the good fuel in but you know you should stop putting the bad stuff in (laughs) well and the thing is that I think like any of us that like I don't think this is an issue of many people think sometimes when you choose to change your dietary habits that it's an issue of willpower. I think it's an issue of why and how power, you know, um, because once you understand the why much more and then you're, you couple it with very practical how, it's really a, a formula for success because, um, and I think both of us being in social work, we're very trained to look at the whole person. So someone might say, for example, just as simple, like let's take the keto diet right now. So they would say, um, keto diet, oh, you can lose weight. And I would totally agree with that. You absolutely can lose weight on the keto diet. Absolutely. However, unfortunately, to sustain it, um, can you do that? Usually not, because there's not very much variety in it. But the other thing is, that while you're losing, you know, you're, you're happy with the number on the scale, you're often not happy with the number with regard to your heart, your cholesterol, your high blood pressure. You're not happy with the kidney problems. There are more nephrologists now saying that they are meeting people in their 30s who have very severe kidney damage as a result of the keto diet. So it's something that, you know, it takes taking care of one part of it, but I'm saying I, I want to be really self-loving and say I want it all. I want it. Why can't we're intelligent, smart people? Why wouldn't we want to have the whole picture? Why wouldn't we want our heart to be well? Why wouldn't we want our kidneys to be well? Our liver not get fatty liver disease, which can be associated with that kind of thing. Why would we want to not have all those other things too? We're certainly deserving of them. Absolutely, absolutely. I completely agree. And that's what I think. Like, if you could have all of those things or just a hot, but I think that, forgive me if I'm wrong, everyone who's listening, it may have been Mark Craig or Anthony Hodge or Dr. Andrew Pennington. It was one of them. I'm so sorry. You're all counted as excellent doctors. But one of them talking about, you know, these Instagram models coming in and they're in these super, super fit looking healthy bodies. They cycle, they run marathons, they're 
you know, they've got tons of followers on social media from their promoting this paleo keto lifestyles and their fitness. And they, they're in their offices with heart, heart issues in their, you know, early, late 30s, early 40s because of the way that they're eating. Kareem, there's one word for that. Not a lot of people are always familiar with it. It's called being a tofi. Thin on the outside, fat on the inside. Tofi. And it's something because we don't understand why someone like that all of a sudden dies of a heart attack, mm. like out of the blue. Mm. Well, we know that 40% of people who have a heart attack do not ever get to pick up their fork again because they are dead. Um, and many times, I know Dr. Esselstyn, I've gotten to know him quite well, because after watching Forks Over Knives, I wrote him and told him about my severe right-sided heart failure and pulmonary arterial hypertension. And within two days, the secretary said, Dr. Esselstyn wants your number. He wants to talk to you. And he immediately told me that I had to up my nitric oxide in the form of eating um, leafy greens. And you could have them, like often they're helpful if they're steamed or I just put them in the microwave to steam them because it's easier and it's portable because I can travel with that very easily. Um, and, uh, and so I started doing that right away. And then I also uh, looked at John McDougall's work um, and I had looked at Neil Bernard's before that on about reversing diabetes. But I found that the combining Dr. Esselstyn and Dr. McDougall were just kind of like really just put it, pulled it together for me and created this great thing because uh, Dr. Esselstyn talks about eating you know green six times a day and people go right away are going, oh my God, like I've had people from around the world since this disease is so rare contact me. And, you know, so I had one lady say to me, you know, I'm, I'm crying because I don't think I can do that. I said, what you don't realize is, no, it's not like, you know, you're not like Popeye the man that you have to eat this. <laughs> um, you can do so many interesting things with your greens. That they're disguised. I said, for example, a soup bowl, you actually, you know, line your soup bowl with the greens already steamed. And then you eat it that way. And believe it or not, it's really delicious. Arugula is the number one for nitric oxide. And it's a little bit more of a bitter one, but when you steam it and then you put it with different things or just even sprinkle nutritional yeast on, it's amazing how much we can enjoy it. And so you can put it in chilies, you can put it in pasta sauce, you can put it on top of your pizza. I love steamed arugula on top of a whole wheat pita pizza kind of thing. Um, so there's so many ways to have it that it does not have to be a really difficult chore. So when you first, so you watched Fox Over Knives, you went home. I wrote to Dr. Esselstyn, and then I was very fortunate. My son helped raise some money for me to go, and my husband, because my husband had to travel with me, because, of course, there I'm blind and on oxygen. Yes. We went to California. Dr. McDougall, just at the same time, I had a friend who just died of a lung transplant. She was only 35. So I was very disheartened. I was crying and crying right in front of my computer. And then up popped all of a sudden this message Dr. McDougall was offering. I had never seen it before. Again, I felt it was like, thank you, God. Um, he was offering a five day, which was potentially affordable for us. And we attended that. Um, we went down to Santa Rosa, California, and um, I sat right in the front row because I couldn't see very much. And I just listened to every single lecture. We had lectures from you're up at seven in the morning and we didn't go. We were finished by nine at night for five days. And uh, I never took a nap. There were people that were 
more fit than me taking naps. <laughs> and I was just so determined. I was taking every ounce that I could get out of that. And I ended up becoming a starch solution certificate holder, uh, taking the Ruby course on plant-based nutrition. It's a cooking course. Uh, I've taken Dr. Esselstyn's uh, ones on uh, cardiac that he has had through through the Cleveland Clinic. And I've taken my plant-based nutrition certificate through E. Cornell and T. Colin Campbell and Nutrition of a Healthy Heart through him. So I've done almost like everything that's actually possible. <laughs> and I just finished a, a course through Yale University on the science of well-being. So it was like just been really fascinating journey that I've wanted to get uh, as much information as I could. So how long between you watching Forks Over Knives and today? How long ago was it when you watched it? Um, you know what? I actually, I can't re- I just, I, I know that I started eating this. Yeah, it would have been, I think I watched Forks Over Knives in November or something. And I, I, I started eating this way December of 2012. Wow. And so before then, you were sick for five years. Really very severely sick for five years. I almost lost my life in 2010, actually. I was in the hospital for 60 days. I almost did not pull through. I gained 80 pounds of fluid. And um, they really thought that was kind of it, going to be it for me. I ended up leaving the hospital finding out that I had quite severe kidney damage as a result of the drugs and everything. Um, And then in 2013, I was on an IV antibiotic that was a pediatric dose. It was approved by my nephrologist and everything. Well, we had floods here and our labs got flooded. Our, Our house ended up being okay, but our labs got flooded and it turned out that I was severely allergic to the antibiotic and they didn't know. And I went down to 4% kidney functioning. And so I had just gotten off the lung transplant list. If you can imagine, I got off my oxygen. I still have oxygen at night, um, about two liters at night. Uh, Cause I'm really flat. Like I used to be on raised on about three or four pillow. Like now I can actually be just on a single, actually quite thin pillow. And, um, I can exercise up to 60 minutes a day on my a new step bike, which is a, a resistance kind of exercise bicycle. And, um, and uh, so I, I felt really fortunate. And then, lo and behold, because my kidneys had already been quite severely damaged already with the drugs, because I was on at one point a drug called Remodulin. What happens is when they have steps to the drugs they put you on. So the very first drug I was put on was, believe it or not, was Viagra. Um, Viagra Viagra was originally for heart patients in the first place. And then they discovered that um, it had an incredible side effect for male patients. It raised the flag. (laughs) (laughs) So what was very helpful for that, though, is that brought down the cost of the drug because, of course, it was now not used for heart patient, it was used in addition for heart patients, but for erectile dysfunction. So it brought down the cost of it tremendously. And yet people don't realize erectile dysfunction for men, that's the canary in the, the yes. mind. It is a warning because they're very, very fine blood vessels and the spongy kind of tissue uh, around the, pe- the urethra of the, and the penis, the shaft, that that's why you know, they cannot, person cannot raise the flag, cannot get an erection because those blood vessels have been damaged and they can't get the blood flow completely there. 
because that's all that's what's happened is when someone is erect, you're having a big influx of blood come into that area. And so I think a lot of people talk about the benefits of this diet being for men. You know, if men are often reluctant, more reluctant to come on this way of living. So you, tar- you target them, you target the thing that they care about the most. <laughs> I loved my conversation with a gentleman who I knew through our church. He was a Walmart greeter. And I ended up one day, I actually managed to get over to our Walmart. And there was a grocery store right beside it kind of thing. And I walked in and I said, I made it. I can't believe it. And I, you know, I still have the blind cane and everything. I made it. And he goes, where do you think you made it? I said, I'm in Walmart. And he goes, no, you're not. And he was joking. Then he looked <laughs> at my face. I looked so shocked and disappointed. He goes, Kate, I'm only kidding. It's like you're, you're not in the grocery store. You're at Walmart. And then we got talking. And I don't know how we got. But he ended up telling me about his erectile dysfunction <laughs> somehow. But how awful he felt using Viagra. And I said to him, I understand because I feel just as awful, but I don't even get an erection or anything. I don't get any side benefits Yeah, because you feel like you have the flu, like, like for several days when people take, like, and that's what he felt too. So I don't know. I haven't got around and surveyed a lot of men about that, but it's kind of like has flu like symptoms. You just don't feel that great, you know, and he ended up stop taking it because he just felt so awful on it. So six years on, you have your eyesight back. Yes. It took about 15 months and I got my sight. It just happened sort of slowly and gradually. And you see, I didn't make real notes about that. And part of the reason was when I went to McDougal, one of the things he suggested to all of us is he said, set a date for yourself. Don't set 30 days. Give it a really reasonable amount of time, like three or four months or whatever it is, but set a date to really give it a really good shot at this so that you can really see if there's some results or not. Because what do you got, like in your whole lifetime, three months, like that's not a big deal. And so I decided, it was December 1st we started, and I had decided before Christmas was a perfect time, and I'll tell you why, because Christmas is a time of excuses and passes for eating lots of chocolate, candy, you know, all the, the stuff that's not good for you. We overindulgence, all that stuff. And I thought, if I can get through Christmas, every other holiday will be a breeze. Like, it won't be an issue. So let's tackle the tough stuff first. And I had learned that through my work with people with anxiety. Because what is the one thing they want to do when you're anxious is avoid. And so you put off. And you think, I'll do all the smaller things first, and then it'll be easier for me to do the hard thing. Believe it or not, it makes the hard thing look even bigger and more hard when you keep putting it off, even if you've done some success with smaller things. Sometimes it's better to tackle the hard thing, the biggest hard thing first, fall down a couple times, but damn it, you're going to really push yourself to get back up. And so that's how it was my approach. And my husband was right on board with that, which I'm very blessed that he was. Um, but I had already made up my mind for those people who maybe don't have someone who's an immediate support to them. I know I was really doing it for me and it really didn't matter if other people were going to go along or not. Um, people could see I was really determined and I wasn't going to be shaken from it. So I, what I did is my birthday's April 8th and I said, April 8th, I promised myself I would no questions asked. I could have whatever I wanted that day if I wanted a banana split, or if I wanted whatever it was. So I have to be honest with you. First probably month or so, 
it felt like I would go to bed dreaming and I don't usually dream of food. <laughs> I would be kind of dreaming of, okay, I'll have that banana split or I'll have this or I'll have that, you know? And uh, that helped me kind of psychologically. Cause I was, I was still making psychologically. I was still making the choice. I was choosing every time to take care of my health over taking care of what I thought was pleasure. But what I didn't realize is, I was taking care of mouth. That's only mouth pleasure. It doesn't end up lasting very long because after then you feel kind of guilty and then you may even feel ashamed and you feel all those other things that don't fit with my values. And it also, I think we pointed out that, you know what? He works with a lot of very successful, smart people. And yet they have this challenge around their health and what to do about it. And so that was also reassuring. This isn't somebody like, you know, we're not a bunch of lazy, you know, can't do it, can't get it going, uh, you know, weak willed. No, this is all about the why and the how. And it's just, you know, really lining that up and being more accurate and fair to yourself that you need to have those blanks filled in for yourself. And I, and I think going back to what you said earlier, you're talking about the negatives versus the positives, the pros versus the cons. And I think that with that why and that how, when you start to think, like for me, I always default to brownies. I love brownies. And thankfully, Fox Overnight's brownies that they posted just recently on their Facebook page <laughs> are delicious. And so I don't have to miss out on anything at all. But... You know, that was those kinds of foods were in my mind as my banana, yes. my banana split. But when, like yourself, once I started to think, okay, a brownie is delicious, like you say, it's a pleasure in my mouth and I think it's so good. But is it as good as Kate's eyesight? Doubtful. You know, is it as good as her Lungs having oxygen? No, it's not as good as it's not good. It's not as good as me being able to feel my legs or play with my kids or not be in an obese body or not be constipated or living with candida. There is no brownie delicious enough to trade for my health. And the other thing is that what we're doing is we're using the food as an emotional band aid for something that guess what the wound is still there. So how do we take care of that? Does that really fit with your values? Because you probably would not put an emotional band-aid on somebody else. You'd say, I'll sit with you with it. I'll, I'm going to be there with you. I know you're struggling. And guess what? I might not be enough, so let's bring somebody else in Let's or some other resource or whatever. Um, so the person, I always believed in a package of services for people because, you know, people are complex. They're not simple. They're, they have multiple needs at different times. So, like, you know, and I really think, like, hope is so important, but it's it's a foundational building block that draws inspiration, that creates motivation, that gives us the oomph to go and seek out the whys and the hows then. And find out your own, like Kate's saying here, I, I remember interviewing Jeanette Murray Wakelin, and she was talking about how she had terminal cancer. If you don't know her story, it's incredible, but she... um talks about for her she knew there's different things that she needed to tweak in her life for her to 
get her health back on track. Yes. And for yeah. each person, it's different. Like Kate's saying, you know, you, you, you might need a lot of tools. You might need to work with your doctor. You might need to work with someone teaching you about how to meditate or how to do yoga yes. or how to calm yourself down. If you're someone who's always heightened and anxious and stressed, a counselor or a relationship supporter, whatever it is, all those things impact on your ability to stick to a whole food plant-based diet because if you're constantly in fight or flight just this stressed out person that's work life's unmanageable your finances are unmanageable your relationships are manageable your home life's unmanageable it's very difficult to stick to and commit to yourself into a whole food plant-based diet because you can't see the wood the tree for the wood or whatever it's called it can be a like, you know, food can be a symbol of nurturing, you know, which I can really appreciate. However, it's often very short term, because it's like that immediate bliss factor, like, and there's something called bliss, it was actually developed by a doctor named a scientist named bliss is that first taste, it kind of, ah, oh, it feels good. It, usually, the second taste doesn't get the bliss in the same way you keep eating to try to get the bliss back. Um, but we kind of do that as you know, when I see people going through fast food things, I'm thinking, they're really just wanting that instant nurturing, like someone's made a meal for them or something. And yet, you know what, if you sat down with a stranger, and they just said, Oh, how's your day going, that would probably just be as nurturing, if not more nurturing. That's the irony. You know, that's the really thing is that we're, we're feeding our emotions instead of, you know, or, or, or sometimes we're feeding our fatigue, or there can be a lot of reasons we end up reaching for food. Yeah, I I'm a procrastinator personally. I procrastinate. I get, I'm, I'm better at it, but in my life, that's always been my thing. If I'm avoiding homework or study or a conversation that I don't want to have, I'll go to the pantry. I think a lot of people, for everyone eats for different reasons. I eat when I'm tired as well, all different kinds of yeah. reasons. And sometimes we're just not tracking that. We kind of go on an automatic pilot and it becomes kind of mindless. And I think what we want to do is have our habits become mindful at first then transition to be at mindless that gee breakfast is sort of automatic like for me breakfast is I get my oats and I don't like porridge so I have dry oats but what I do is I put frozen blueberries on put it in the microwave for maybe like two minutes it gets all melty and everything and I just love it that way it tastes like kind of a warm bowl of granola kind of texture and I I really enjoy those large flake oats with the blueberries and and I even have a little bit of arugula on the side, believe it or not, because <laughs> it's so flavorful. Um, and that's sort of an automatic pilot. I don't even have to think about it. I can travel with that very easily because I can, you know, often you can go and get a, a, a hotel that has a microwave and a fridge. And you can even put your you can have your fresh blueberries or whatever. And it's really easy to carry the oats in your suitcase. You know, you don't ever have to worry. It's right there. So it's those kind of things. So we want to kind of change things from being very mindful into mindlessness, that it doesn't have to be this really taxing burden. And food doesn't have to be a frenemy, you know, like, yeah, it's wonderful some days. And then I, I hate it other days. And I hate what it does to me versus let's let's make it a partner in our whole health. Um, and so that we know that that's really I mean, without food, Food is about 80%, exercise is about 20 and together they have a wonderful synergy together to do that. And doctor, are you familiar with Dr. McDougall, for example? Well, I mean, he's done that study, University of Oregon, with MS patients, for example. 
And while he wanted the study to be longer, to be able to show that there was less scarring on the brain, he couldn't do that. But what his results did show is they got down to normal blood pressure, normal blood sugar. Um, that, and what I think is so important is the patients reported that they had more energy. They felt so much better. They had, you know, those are things that, like, that's what really is, like, my doctors, my five doctors, my five specialists were brilliant doctors, each in their own right. Their whole focus and their whole focus today is just to keep me alive. My focus has been to keep me living. And that's a very, very different focus, to be honest mm, with you. Mm. And what does that mean to you? Like, what does what is your life like? Like, obviously, you were yeah. Because what I've been told is, I will probably need a kidney transplant. But I've been already told that it's probably um, quite hopeless, actually, because I can't use a um, a deceased donor because they would have to flood my body with with fluids and that would uh with my pulmonary hypertension i would be that would kill me uh, my heart couldn't take that the pressure on my lungs could not take that and then i've tested 100 percent for positive antibodies so it would have to be a maybe a stranger that would donate and it's really rare to be able to have that happen so i, I made peace with that and one of the things my retinologist said to me is kate you will become blind again uh once you start dialysis um, and so I look at it this way is that I know that's in the room, but I don't keep it beside me. You know, my disease is in the room. I'm not in denial. I know it's there, but I'm not willing to give it front and center. I'm not giving it my window seat in life. And that's to me what living is. It's in the corner. Sometimes it comes over and it sits beside me and says, you're really tired today. And I go, okay, I'll listen to you. I'll share my bench with you. But then you know you have to go back to your corner again, you know. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's you know, and, and uh, I've, the disease and I have managed with each other. We're respectful of each other, just like you're respectful of water. You know, it can be wonderfully entertaining. It can be refreshing. It can be all those things. And then you also know when it can be dangerous and when you have to get out or whatever. Take care of yourself. So to me, living is when I'm actually making a contribution in life and um, I'm involved with people, I'm having discussions with people, I'm spending time with people. Um, those are the things that really count. And it's all those, and happiness is really about the small moments. It's not the big, like having a big corporate salary or whatever it is. It's none of those things, believe it or not. We all have a certain amount of money that we need to earn in order to make our basic needs and everything. Beyond that, we're usually not happier. Most people who earn a lot more money are actually quite unhappy because they're always, it's never enough. And it's always in those small moments. It's like when, like, I never knew, like, I did not expect to ever see my children graduate. I couldn't see my children graduate from high school because I was blind. I got to see them graduate from university because I could see again. Oh, my God. I was about to ask you, tell, so tell us how this, like, Forks Over Knives, life since Forks Over Knives have changed your life, that you got to see your children graduate. Well, I would say I'm healthier than I think I've ever honestly been, despite having two major diseases of end-stage kidney failure and my pulmonary hypertension. My pulmonary hypertension has gone from, it's, there's four levels, it was a three out of four, sometimes three and a half. It's down to one. 
now. I'm off my pH drugs. So uh, I wake up with no incontinence or anything like that, you know. Um, do I spring right out of bed? Not quite, but I'm ready to take on the day and I'm excited to see what's going to happen today. Um, I've really found out who I've had to create new friends. And as a result, we do a community potluck, for example, once a month or it's coming up tomorrow night and we do a vegetation with it. And we're offering now a meal, a, a dish exchange as well. So we have these containers that people can buy for ten dollars is just to cover cover the investment of the containers they're microwavable re, reuse them all that kind of stuff and they make two servings of food and then people can bring in four containers and exchange them for four back so they get a variety of foods and stuff especially it's great for especially for people who are on their own and they get tired of having to cook or maybe they're the only one eating this way predominantly this way in the family so at least they don't have to make two meals like they've got some of that then what we do in that's in the second thursday of the month then on the fourth monday beginning of the week we do a a staying power which is a support group for eating a whole plant-based diet and um we do that in order to be able to have people discuss like maybe they have a partner who thinks this is a ridiculous way to eat when in fact, everyone needs to be eating some fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes. Like this is not something faddish or anything like that. Um, but and and just even okay, how do I handle a restaurant? What do I do here? Or gee, I've sort of hit a plateau. Does and what we do is, uh, my husband and I are facilitators, and we get a round of solutions. We create a solution menu for the person and they can pick and choose whatever, you know, it's just we give it to them and then they have this sheet and they can read it off and use it or not use it. Um, and the idea is just to say thank you for the ideas and then they can test them out and come back and let us know if, if they found something that worked. And maybe it's not even on the sheet. They found something else that worked, but it got them knowing they didn't they could just sit and listen and then they had all the ideas recorded for them. So they didn't have to be trying to do both. So can people follow you on social media? Do you have a web page? Yeah, do you have we have um, forksmart.org is the website. And right now we're working on a program of self-love solutions for rewriting your relationship with food. And the idea of that is so that you can, um, you know, uphold the values you have without cha- having to change who you are, what you value, and your connections to others. So that's so it's the self-love solutions for rewriting your relationship with food because we all have a relationship with food. It's probably our key relationship. And um, so we're going to work on that. We do some I do some individual like, you know, there's like coaching and counseling and that kind of stuff. And all the money goes to green analysis that helps support our website and that kind of thing. We even have perks on our website. Uh, we have um, a potluck system that people can buy just so that they can start one in their own community. It's very inexpensive, but it gives you all the all the materials that you need and steps and how to look for a venue and just just gives you the whole package together that's been based on um, all the years of trial and error and everything like that. Oh, wonderful! So on social media, where people people find yeah, you? Yeah, we put a Fork Smart Summit. This summit's coming up on. Um, Saturday, um, May 11th, and we're going to have Dr. David Jenkins, who developed 
He's a medical doctor out of the University of Toronto. That's in Ontario, Canada. Sorry, when was that? He's Dr. David Jenkins. He's a medical doctor with uh, several PhDs, and he is um, he's a, a professor at University of Toronto in Canada. And he's coming to Calgary, Alberta, which is where we live, and he he developed the glycemic index that is used by many. And he recently, in the last couple of years, became vegan. Oh, great. Yeah, he was vegetarian before and has become vegan. And he's very interested in the environment as well and sustainable eating. So on on social media, you're at ForkSmart as, as well? ForkSmart? Yeah, for, yeah. Uh, social media, it's ForkSmart Canada. ForkSmart Canada, everyone who's listening. It, so that, that on, is great. Um, ForkSmart Canada is for our Instagram and then just ForkSmart for our social media Twitter account and yeah. Okay, so lastly before I have to I have to go, yes. but what would be your three biggest tips for anyone listening who's considering this lifestyle? Well, I think uh, number one is to really know what you value in life, what's really important to you, not what you think you should should be important, but what is really important to you. And make a list of that to see are you living how you're living right now? Does that match your values? Or have they kind of, you know, been put to the side uh, because of whatever circumstances or whatever? And second is um, to be able to follow, realize that you are ultimately the case manager of your own life. That really no one is going to, you've got to be in the driver's seat and you can be, even despite the, your, what feels like your dependence may be on the medical model and everything else, your voice matters and you just have to be able to keep repeating it and saying it because someone is going to hear it. I very much love that's a very social work number two. You're the case manager of your life. I love that so much. <laughs> I've had to tell many parents that when they get their kids into some kind of residential care, you're still the case manager no matter who tells you that they are, you know, <laughs> bottom line. Um, and I think the third one is, you know what, it is far better to be self-loving at every opportunity than to be self-loathing. You know, and that seems like, well, why would I ever be self-loathing? But so many of us go to that position first. We, we're let down by something we do or we're disappointed in something we do rather than saying, guess what? Life is about being full of problems. Some are big, some are small. Look at what I've been able to do and be really proud of what you've done and take ownership for it and hold on to that ownership. Don't gloss over that because those are the type of things that will help feed us, truly feed us to be able to try the net to conquer the next problem, you know, because really we want to move from problem talk to solution talk. We really want to say the solution is there and I've got to be able to use my own expertise. But if I beat myself up too much, I can't even hear my own wisdom. That is such a good one. And I think that a lot of us think that we're, that you know, we aren't self-loathing until you really sit down and think about the things that you talk to yourself about all day and how quickly we go to that position right away. And it's almost like, you know, we always hear, and when I hear people say, well, I should do this and should do that. I always go, whose voice is that? And they look at me and go, well, I guess it's mine. And I said, no, we don't say I should go to the doctor. We'll go, I'm going to the doctor. That's my voice saying I'm going to the doctor. The should might be your mother, might be your spouse. It might be a friend who's telling like, you know, that's not you saying I should. 
you know, cause you're not, you're not even, you're, you're having to try to convince yourself yes, and, and yes. we just have to listen to ourselves a little bit more to realize that, you know what, you're the only one, like I've, I can remember saying to a client, no one else will know what you're truly going through except you and God, but that's the only two, two beings at all. Like no one will totally appreciate what it took for you to accomplish what you have. No one really can. They're not quite in your shoes. You know, they can have a good imagination for it, but only you will know, sincerely know how hard you tried or what effort you put into it. And it's that kind of self-loving, you know, I think we have two arms to be able to hug ourselves, you know, and we have to start with ourselves first because we're more likely then to expect that from other people too. And we're not going to, we're going to say, Hey, I'm not going to take that from somebody. They can do it. And now that I know that that's how they're going to operate, then I have a right to take care of myself, you know? Yes. Because there's always going to be someone there with judgment, but we don't, we, hopefully it's not ours with harsh judgment because we have to take care of ourselves. And I always tell people, you know, if you ever doubt who's your best friend in the world, just go to the bathroom and look in the mirror because it's that person's right there for you. And, and they're the ones you can count on. And that's not meaning that that other people don't love you in your life. But it bottom line is, guess what? The hard lifting has to be you loving you. And that is a really tough lesson. And that's probably the toughest lesson I've had. And I still have to keep working on it. And I don't think anybody um, would be human if you didn't. You know, that's probably one of our flaws is it's really hard to believe how important it is to love ourselves. Okay, that is so, I think what you're saying has Will, will resonate with so many people because for me, I think that's been the biggest. It's the last piece of my own puzzle was yeah. going from that yeah. self, oh, deep self-loathing in my teens yeah. and even in primary school, you know, all the way through, and even now, like it's. I don't think it's going to be a thing that I'm going to tick off. <laughs> I think it's a thing that it's. I think <laughs> it's it's part of human nature. It's just that human we nature. Social ongoing. comparison that is part of. That is honestly part of our our makeup is we socially we're social animals, so we socially compare. But I'm saying compare yourself to you first. Because that's the yardstick that really counts. But I think like you're saying, as your, as your third one reason why I love it for the third you know, for in this top three tips, which which I'm guessing I'm putting her on the spot, so you know, she might change her top three tips might change. This probably isn't in any Thank hierarchy. <laughs> But they're great. They're great. They're a great three, no matter where they are ranking your actual <laughs> list. But I think that's good for it being being in this for you mentioning it because I think that for most of us, committing to a low fat whole food diet feels like, and it is because our society every, everywhere we look, our society is telling you not not to try this. Oh, absolutely. And it, it's a radical. It's an act of radical self love to choose this. It is. It is. It takes courage. And recommitting to it every day is recommitting to yourself and to loving yourself because this diet makes you feel so good. But if you're in that negative mindset, in that self-loathing mindset, it's so, so, so easy to reach for that comfort food, to reach for that brownie, that banana split, that whatever it is. But the, the, the big message is you're almost saying, I don't think I'm worth it. And you want to say, hold it, you are. Like you don't have to go with the status quo. Guess what? Because you know it's a bit of crazy making because who are the ones trying to educate us on diet? It's the marketers who are selling a product. 
it's not they're they're into shelf life they're not into our life <laughs> so it's like you know so it's it's a matter of being able to say that and the thing is we we go for a temporary fix because it feels so painful and what i want to say to people is guess what Unple- they're unpleasant feelings. They're not bad feelings. There's no such thing as really good feelings and bad feelings, but there are unpleasant feelings. But it's like a roller coaster. In the roller coaster, you can go up it. It doesn't bother you. But there's that dip that's, whoa. Guess what? It's usually only about 30 or 90 seconds. And once you get through it, you're through it. And so guess what? Yes, it will be unpleasant. But guess what? You know. You'll come out the other side. Uh, it's been psychologically proved that we can go back. That resiliency will bring us back up. Um, and that's why we see people even at funerals starting to laugh and stuff because we can already, we're already planting flowers on the grave, so to speak, because we start having those wonderful memories about the person who's maybe just passed. And that's part of our resiliency. That's part of self-love. And we just have to start looking through it through that lens and think, you know, Self-love, the fact is, like at the beginning of this uh, interview, you shared in a very caring way with your audience, with our the audience that we have today, um, hey, you know, I just had a dog walk go through a plate glass window. It was really upsetting. It's, I mean, horrible to think. Um, you know, somebody could have been hurt in the family and everything. It was like a near miss. And there's a lot of gratitude in it. But you let people know where you were. And you said, hey, uh, for a few minutes, I might sound a little shakier, a little different than myself. And guess what? That's like a gift you gave yourself because you just said, I'm going to be me and I'm going to take the risk and I am enough. And therefore, that you know, that is the self-loving. You didn't put on this artificial, like, I've got to be this really tough, strong person. Strength, Real strength comes in saying, this is what my need is right now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That was you just reminded me. I've gotten so lost in all of your words, Kate. And now I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh, dear. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. And I'm excited to know that you're doing some wonderful things yourself. And I think that's the one thing about, you know, while this is a radical way of loving, I think many people have found once they enter this world how generous people are in the whole plant based world. Uh, because they feel so wonderful themselves. It's like, who would not want to share it with anybody else? If they're interested, you don't want to hit anybody else over the head with it. But just by the glow you you have yourself and everything and you feel so good. You're happy when you know, when we have good news, we, we are happy to share that good news with other people. And that's a pretty great way to contribute to the world. Thank you so much for sharing your really great news with us today, Kate. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Kate, for coming on the show. Thank you all so much for listening. That was a tough but so, so, so inspiring story to listen to. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, Kate. I um, I can't imagine what you've been through and I hope if you're listening and you're in a really dark place, firstly, that you have some support, please don't be alone through this. You know, find, if, you, if you are alone, call. We have Lifeline here in Australia. Find a local counsellor or find someone in your friendship group. Reach out to people. Tell them that you're not okay, that you need your support. No one that loves you wants you to be alone. And if there is no one that you think is out there that can support you, 
reach out to service providers in your area. It might be your local church. It might be your local... I'm not religious, but these people still want to help. So whoever you have in your community, support groups, people, whatever it is, reach out to them, Google them, find them, whatever country that you're in. I hope that you have a support group like Lifeline or something like that that can be there for you when you're feeling like nobody else is and 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 hear your story and and hopefully help support you to find solutions or find comfort or just get you some food <laughs> give you a nice hot meal do something for you that's really nice that you need that can help you get motivated or just make you laugh take you out for a walk whatever it is make sure that you you know support yourself and love yourself and give to yourself as much as you can however you can when you're going through a really hard time I hope this episode has helped to inspire you and keep you motivated and hearing how how dark a place Kate was in I hope that it helps people to think well if she can if she can come out of that which was so hard then we can do so much more than what we we think we can especially when we're in those dark places so thank you Kate for sharing it's really inspired me and I know it's going to inspire someone well many many people out there to to know that they're not alone and to know that even in their darkest times there is hope and light at the end and we just have to keep moving toward that and taking the steps needed to feel better, like a whole food plant-based diet, getting some exercise, doing some meditation, getting some vitamin D, all those kinds of things and just reaching out to people and connecting with people and trying to find joy wherever that is. Have a great weekend and I will see you next week. Bye.